What's going on, guys? Hostile Q&A number 10, and I am back to try and give you guys some more information. We got about 300 questions in, so I'm going to do two parts. Oh, and I'm just going to address the elephant in the room. What do you guys think of the new backdrop? So that is the new Hostile backdrop. It is, uh, I feel like I'm in a real studio all of a sudden. So I hope you guys like it too. But um, anyway, on to more important business. Uh, I got a lot of Q and A's to get to. So I'm, if you, if I'm rushing, it's because I want to get to them. We're going to probably try and make this a two part uh, video as usual because there's just so many questions. So I'm going to do a bunch of questions now and we're going to put this up on my YouTube channel and then we're going to do another bunch of questions and we'll put the second part up on the hostile YouTube channel. If you guys haven't subscribed yet, go over, subscribe to the hostile YouTube channel. There's probably nothing on there yet, but we're going to start putting all new videos and new clips, kind of how to's and things like that all on that channel. So, uh, follow me here, follow me there. Uh, we're going to get some more information to you and, uh, we'll get it all up. So we'll do the first part here though. So let's get to it. Nanny Rizalbogu says, what subs do you use before fasted cardio and do you run or, or do power walking? So during my cardio, I drink essential amino acids. There are some days where I may drink them before I get to the gym, but usually I drink them during my cardio and that's it. Uh, I do my cardio fasted. I'm not trying to say that fasted cardio is the best cardio because a lot of studies have proven that cardio is cardio, whether you do it first thing in the morning or eight o'clock at night, doesn't matter. Personally, I feel better doing my cardio first thing in the morning. I feel like it starts my day, clears my mind, gets my energy levels up or like at the start of the day when I want them started. And it kind of just sets up my day properly. I almost treat it like a meditation of sorts. You know, there's that half an hour, 40, 45 minutes, whatever, however much cardio you do, where you just kind of zone out. And that's my kind of meditative time. So that's why I do it in the morning. Uh, and I do it, like I said, fasted, except for my essential aminos. I usually do four to five sessions a week all year round. When I'm getting ready for a show, I might go up to six and I might do two sessions a day. So it'll be 12 sessions altogether. Um, but in the off season, just one session a day, four to five days a week, usually 30 minutes is all I do. And that's for a host of different reasons. One, it keeps my appetite up. Two, it's good for my health. Uh, three, like I said, it gets my day started and it's a meditative thing for me that I just like to do. And four, it just keeps me more active and I'm burning a few more calories throughout the day instead of just sitting around all day long. Um, as far as what I do when I'm doing cardio, I, it doesn't matter if you're power walking or doing the stepper or doing the bike or doing the, you know, whatever it is. I like to do the least amount of activity that will get my heart rate up the most. So I choose the stairs. If I walk on the treadmill, I generally have to get into a jog before I get to 120 to 130, 140 beats per minute. If I'm riding the bike, I got to ride pretty hard to get to 130, 140 beats per minute. And that's kind of my target is 130. 120 minimum. Um, usually I can do it pretty easily on the elliptical, but more so on the step mill than anything. If I get on the step mill, I can walk at a really slow pace, like two, three, level two or three, and my heart rate will, heart rate will easily get to 120 or 130. So always keep that in mind when you're trying to choose your cardio. You want to do the least amount of activity that's going to have impact on the muscle as to not burn any muscle or impact the muscle negatively that will get your heart rate up the fastest, but not necessarily the highest. I don't want it going over 140. 
that's like my target. So you want to stay in that 120 to 140 range so that you're not burning muscle, you're burning more fat that way. Andy Stack says, how long do you guys stay off cycle for? Bulking cycle compared to cutting cycle. Thanks, guys. Okay, so I'm assuming uh, you thought this was for me and Luke, but it's not just for me. So I'm just going to answer for myself because I'm not sure what all the other guys do for their cycles. We don't usually discuss all that. Um, my cycles are usually six to eight weeks off. And when I say off, it's not in current years, it's different than early years. In my early years, I used to go all the way off. I'd go off for six weeks, get blood work done. If my blood work was pretty close to being ready, like everything was back to normal, I would start after two more weeks off. So it'd be eight weeks. If I do blood work and my blood work's not normal, I don't usually go on until it is normal again. Uh, the fastest that's ever happened is four weeks. So you just stay off for four weeks, had blood work done. It was good. At the six-week mark, I was ready to go. Uh, that's generally my off periods and off. I try to go off every 16 weeks I try and time it. So I at least have two off periods in the year before my pre-contest. That's how I, I like to do it. Um, but there's a very, there's a number of different ways and I, and I can't say all that for sure. Cause I haven't always done it that way. There was one year where I was off for 16 weeks straight and I mean off everything, not even TRT, not even nothing. It was just off. This was when I was younger and and then I started and I, I went through right my off season all the way through my pre-contest. So there's that, that year where I was off for a long period of time and then on for a pretty long period of time. And there's other years where they cycle on and off. Um, and there's years where then you do the blast cruise thing where you're kind of on all year, but there's periods of the year where you're on a lower dose. Um, so there's a number of different ways you can set it up. My personal best I've ever looked, and I'm not saying this is what everybody should do. This is just for me, the best I ever looked was the year I took 16 weeks off. It was the worst I felt for those 16 weeks. Like, you know, near the end of those 16 weeks, like 12 to 16 week mark, because I was all the way off, there was no TRT, not 200 milligrams, nothing. Uh, I started to feel pretty run down. Like my body was getting real beat up. My mental state wasn't really there. And then, but the rebound effect, like when I got back on, uh, everything's felt so fresh after being off for so long, my off season was probably one of the best off seasons I ever had. So there's something to be said for going off for a long period of time and then letting your body really take a break. But there's also something to be said for, you know, keeping that motor running at a certain level, even if you're just doing peaks and valleys. So you kind of have to decide what's best for your body. Really. Is that all that, that question comes down to. Stephen Mc, Hawain, Hawan, I don't know. When was your best off season? What made it better than the previous ones? Just went over it in the last question. Okay. I was off for a long period of time. Now, the other thing I noticed about that off season though, when I did, because I was off, my, my eating was very, very regimented because there was nothing to help me recover. Like I couldn't, you know, I couldn't fucking cut any corners, break any rules. I was kind of like, okay, this is the only thing that's helping me get through my workouts right now is this food. Uh, and whatever supplements I was taking because there was nothing else. So I think one of the keys to that off season I just described where I went off for four months and then, you know, went all the way through to a show after a short off season, I, um, I, I was very, very meticulous in my food. I was eating all my protein on, on a, the exact ounce 
my carbs are the exact down. So I wasn't cheating a lot. I had scheduled cheat meals. Everything was very, very regimented that year. And it really paid off. I was eating a lot of food, but I was eating a lot of like diet food. And then I would just throw in a cheat meal here and there once or twice a week. It wasn't anything crazy. Uh, whereas other off seasons, you know, I would have a little more food at this meal or that meal or a snack in between meals or uh, have a cheat meal and it would lead into a cheat meal the next day and the next day and the next day. And I thought, well, who cares? I'm getting my calories in, but it does matter because, excuse me, my best off seasons, probably the two or three that I can think of off the top of my head were the ones where I ate the most food, but was also the most strict in those in those diets where I didn't really veer off my off season prep, my off season diet at all. And I, I stayed focused and stayed on top of everything a hundred percent. So I really think that's the biggest key to people succeeding who don't have genetic gifts, who aren't taking like a ton of PEDs, or even if you are taking a ton of PEDs, I think the guys who get to the very, very top are the guys that really, really focus on their off seasons as much as they do in their prep. Cause that's where I think most people fall short. Tran Denny says tips on getting all my meals in. I work 12 hour shifts and only get one break. So it's hard to cram down three to 4,000 calories worth of food. And while also finding time for the gym, if you can't find time for the gym, I can't help you. Everybody can find time for the gym. Uh, if, if you want to make it a priority in your life, if it's not a priority for you, then you'll miss if you want to make the food a priority, you have to find a priority. And what I mean, what I mean by that is this. It depends how important it is to you. Like bodybuilding was so important to me that I quit jobs where I couldn't eat. And I'm not saying you should do that. I'm not saying that's the answer. I'm going to give you an alternative answer in a minute. But if your goal is to become a professional bodybuilder or to put on massive amounts of muscle for whatever reason, you have to be focused and you have to have the time to get the food in and, and take the time you need. And if that means quitting a job because your boss won't let you eat, then fucking so be it. Cause that's, I've been there. Okay. Like at 22 years old, I was working shift work uh, where they gave me time to eat, but it was only midnights. And I immediately after two to three, four weeks of working midnights noticed my uh, progression halt in my bodybuilding career. I was only young, so I would still be growing like a weed, but I noticed like all of a sudden things just stopped kind of growing. And I realized because I wasn't sleeping. I was up all night sleeping during the day, up all night doing the shift work bullshit. So I quit good job. High paying job didn't matter. I was like, this is not getting you to where I want to be. So that's the first thing. If you're doing something that doesn't allow you to live the life you want to live, find a different job. If that's not possible, this is the other answer. I don't know any jobs that are out there where you can't find time to drink a shake or sneak a bite in here or a bite in there. Okay. I'm sure there are, there they are there. They, I'm sure they exist. I can't think of any, even at some of my hardest jobs where I wasn't allowed to take breaks, I would bring a shake with me. The shake would usually be consisted of usually 50 to 75 grams of whey, one cup of oatmeal, uh, usually a tablespoon of peanut butter and a banana. I just blend that up. I wouldn't cook the oatmeal. I just blend everything up in a blender and throw it in a, in a container, a shaker cup or something and, and throw it in a cold, in a, in a little uh, carrying bag, lunch bag kind of thing and throw some ice packs in there. It would stay cold all day. 
And I would have two or three of those a day. Now I would still eat, but I'm thinking of it like this. If you get two or three 10 minute breaks, well, there you go. You have three shakes you can pound and you get one whole food meal in the middle or whatever. That's when you have like your real food, you know, steak and potato or whatever. And then you have your other whole food meals when you're at home before and after work. So yeah, three shakes a day is not ideal. I've done it and it works. It's better than not eating. So in your situation, if you can't, absolutely can't eat real food, you don't have time, you only have five or 10 minutes here and there, or you don't even get a break and you just have to keep working, but you can still drink something, that's your best bet. Ronnie Hoey says, does the phrase hard work beats talent when talent beats hard work? Or is talent and bodybuilding genetics the superior parameter? Um, the truth hurts for me sometimes. But genetics is the limiting factor for many of us, okay? Uh, some of us are born with genetic structure, potential to put on muscle really easily, potential to get shredded really, really easily. Everybody's kind of born with a gift. Some of us are born with a little bit of everything. So you have to make the best of what you have. But I don't believe hard work can be talent if talent's working at all. Now, if this guy has great genetics, but he's a lazy fuck. Yeah. Hard work can beat talent, but people say, you know, you have to give me an example. Like Ronnie Coleman is a genetic Marvel, but you add the hard work that he went through. Now you have the goat, right? And he's the greatest bodybuilder of all time. And then people say, well, Dorian Yates had bad genetics, but he worked really hard. I'm like, he did not have bad genetics. You may not have loved his symmetry or aesthetics or something like that, but that doesn't mean he had bad genetics. Anybody who can put on that amount of muscle does not have bad genetics because it's still a genetic proponent to be able to put on that amount of muscle. So at the end of the day, the guys who are going to be the best, the guys who are going to make it to the top, the guys who are going to be the top 50 of the world, top 20 of the world, top 10 of the world, top five of the world, the Mr. Olympias, those are the guys who have some genetics and have a work ethic and they put them together. You know, Branch Warren talks about outworking everybody and how uh, he outworked everybody. And that's why he was a great, which is true. But again, Branch Warren is another guy who was faulted for his symmetry or aesthetics, but was a genetic marvel. You can't go through his workouts and not be destroyed like most people's bodies would just be destroyed after like a year or two. So he had the genetic, the genetic gift of endurance and size. I mean, he's one of the most muscular guys I've ever stood on stage with. So it's hard to say who has genetics and who, who, who doesn't, because it depends how you're looking at it. But in my opinion, if you took a guy with bad genetics who worked really, really hard, and you took a guy with good genetics who worked kind of hard, guy with good genetics is going to win. It's just, it's just a fact of life. We're all born with a gift of, to do something. And I think, you know, it's like, look, me and Lee Priest had this little debate on RX. Lee Priest's genetics are superior to mine. He obviously, you know, he's always talked about not taking a lot of gear, not, you know, never really touching stuff, being off for a lot of the times. He's thick as fuck. It might be because he's short. 
might be because, you know, his limbs are shorter or whatever. It doesn't matter. He's got a ton of muscles, massive arms, massive legs. But if you put, if you put us, if you ask who heart works harder and you're judging that on conditioning, I've been in better condition than he has at some shows. So would, if somebody asked me, did you work harder than Lee Priest? I would say, I think so. If somebody said, is Lee Priest a better bodybuilder? I would say, I think so. Because he's just genetically built for it. So I'm just giving you a straight example because we just had that debate, but I'm sure those examples, you can run them all the way down the line. There's always going to be the genetic argument versus the hard work argument. But in bodybuilding, I believe that as long as the guy with genetics is working, he's going to beat the guy who's working harder. If the guy who's working harder doesn't have as good a genetics. Erie Verges says, how old is too old to start a professional bodybuilding career? I don't ever like to say it's too old because, you know, you you never want to put limits on other people's success or or dreams because you never know what could happen. There's a lot of people that have said, well, I would never turn pro or so-and-so is never going to turn pro or so-and-so's look at who would have thought Brandon Curry is going to win the Mr. Olympia. You know what I mean? There's always somebody out there who's going to say, you can't do this. You can't do that. So I don't really want to say you can't. What I will say is if you're over the age of, if you're 40 or older, you're going to have a really tough time. I'm not saying it's impossible. I mean, Dexter Jackson's 50 years old and he's still fourth place at the Olympia this year. So anything is possible, but it, are you a genetic outlier or are you being realistic? Because if you're 40 and you just started bodybuilding and now you're trying to get your pro card, I think to become a good pro, you'd have to be a genetic outlier. Like you'd have to have a base, some kind of foundation. Um, I don't know if starting from scratch at 40. And the reason I say that is not because at 40, you know, the heart or the drive or whatever, uh, your, your limbs might even be fresh. Your joints might even be fresh because if you haven't trained at all, but I think as your hormones start to go down and things, you're going to add hormones. So that might be a counter, but I just don't think a 40 year old is going to grow the same way a 20 year old will. So it's not impossible, but you're definitely behind the eight ball and it's not, it's not going to be an easy road. It's the same thing. If somebody came to you and said, I'm 40 years old, I'm 40 years old. I want to play in the NFL or I'm 35 or 40. Yeah. 35 or 40 years old and on playing the NFL and you'd say, well, I don't know, dude, can you still sprint the same? Can you still jump the same? Can you still, now we're not doing sprinting and jumping and tackling and all these things, but you're still putting on muscle, you know, and that's a, you're running into some, into some physiological barriers at 35 or 40 years old, but like I said, it bothers me even talking about it because I never, ever want to tell somebody that they can't do something because with enough effort, anything's possible. Brandon T. Sanger says, are off days 100% necessary? I'm a gym rat. I don't want – I, and I don't want to not go, but I feel more injury prone as I keep going back every day. Well, you have your own answer. You kind of answered your own question just the way I did because – uh, the last two or three years, the years I, I think I've been injured the most of my career, I trained six days a week, sometimes seven. 
and I trained instinctively, meaning I would train legs two, three times a week. Sometimes they were really sore. Um, I just trained what I felt like training. I usually get in all the body parts, but it usually meant I was there six or seven days a week and I train hard and I don't think I gave my body the break it needed. And I think that's why I kept tearing things. So this year I decided, okay, I'm going to take two days off scheduled, not active rest days, not fucking bullshit. Not, not, I'm just not going to go to the gym. I'm just not doing it. Just two days off where I do what I used to do. This is how I came up. When I started bodybuilding, I came up five days a week, take two days off. Those two days off are meant to eat and rest and re regrow and recuperate. So when you get back to the gym, you're fully focused and ready to go. So that's what I'm back to doing now. And it honestly has been feeling better so far. My, my recovery is better. My growth is better. I'm putting on weight and I'm still off or I'm just on TRT dose. So uh, things are going exactly as planned because I've taken those extra days off. So all I can tell you is find something to do. And that's what I have to do. I'm, I'm extremely busy. I have uh, the podcast to do and I have uh, the new supplement line coming out. There's just a lot of stuff going on and uh, I'm busy. So on my days off, I take care of all the errands I have to run. I go to the grocery store. I visit my family, do all the things I, I would normally not do on my training days. So I don't think it's good to just go to the gym, even if you feel like you can go to the gym every day. I personally believe it's better to take forced days off and give your body the rest it needs and keep yourself healthy. And especially since you said you're, you're injury prone already. Um, you just kind of, like I said, you answered your own question. If you're injury prone, the answer is to scale back. It's not to go harder. Sean Abutin says, do you have sleep apnea? How does your sleep apnea play a role in bodybuilding? I know lots of bodybuilders have it. I have it. And I'm wondering if training it training is making it worse. Getting big is what's making it worse. The bigger look, I'm not a sleep expert, so I'm not going to like try and explain how sleep apnea works. But all I know is the bigger your neck gets, right? There's just not like when I'm in the off season, I'm heavy and everything's really like condensed. I, my sleep apnea is much worse. Okay. So I, I don't think training is what makes it worse. I think getting bigger is what makes it worse or not even, it couldn't, might not even be necessarily muscular. It could be if you're getting too much fat, that could be making it worse. <coughs> Sorry. So um, training doesn't make sleep apnea worse. Size is what makes sleep apnea worse from, in, in my opinion, from what I've, experienced myself and heard from others who have it. Um, and the effects are, are crazy. The effects of sleep apnea are actually insane to think about because you're going to affect your mood. You affect, if you don't sleep properly, you're affecting your mood. You're affecting your digestion. You're affecting your appetite. You're affecting your training. You're affecting the way your body absorbs food. It's like every facet of bodybuilding that matters is affected by not sleeping properly. And because of that, I have my own sleep apnea machine. I just bought a new one. It's not calibrated properly. I haven't been sleeping as well and my training has suffered. So I have to get my machine calibrated properly so that I can sleep better again. Because there's a real difference if your body's in 
REM sleep, you're getting deep sleep and your body is experiencing the rest and recovery that it needs versus if you're just on the surface sleeping, right? If you're not fully in a deep sleep, your body is not completely rested. You're not going to, your muscles are not going to recover the same way. And actually, I think Stan Efferding was saying it on our last podcast. Uh, the first thing that suffers is your extremities. So if you just had a hard arm day or hard leg day, and you're not sleeping properly, those body parts aren't getting the proper amount of oxygen. So you're going to run into more problems. So if you can see a sleep doctor or a sleep clinic and get a sleep apnea machine, I think you're going to feel the difference immediately once you get used to wearing it and once you get used to sleeping with it on. Body by Boutro says, how long after your pre-workout meal should you take your pre-workout supplement to get the best intake? Uh, I don't know if there's a scientifically perfect time because your foods are all going to digest at different times. I think if you eat a food, if you eat a pre-workout meal, that's not, you know, heavy in fats and it's not, you know, I try and eat like chicken and rice pre-workout, right? The chicken digests pretty easy. Rice is not, it's all very low fat. There's nothing really that's going to keep me satiated and keep digesting in my stomach for hours. So I do the chicken and rice or I'll do fish and rice. And about an hour later, I'll take my pre-workout on the way to the gym. Usually, so if I eat at like, if I eat at like two o'clock, by three o'clock, I'm in the car and I'm on my way to the gym. And on my way to the gym, I drink my pre-workout drink. Uh, I don't think it's, I try and get my pre-workout drink in about 15 minutes before I start training. I don't think it's rocket science. You know, some days you're going to feel it like right away from the first set. Some days you're going to take it too early and you're going to be, hyped up in your car on the way to the gym other days, you know, it's, it's a lot. There's so many, there's so many variables that it's hard to answer this question directly, but I'll just, like I said, I'll just tell you my experience. Eat a clean meal, low in, low in saturated fat, clean, uh, uh, a source of protein that's easy to digest, you know, egg whites, egg whites, uh, chicken, fish. Uh, some people that digest whey really well, you can do whey as well. Um, and then have a low fat, a very, very low fat source with it. Like a very, a very low fat, well, you don't have the whole meal to be low fat. Sorry. Just I lost my train of thought there. You want to go with like a rice or a cream of rice or something that's going to digest really quickly anyway. So about an hour after that meal, have your pre-workout drink and get to the gym. Pretty simple. Leg or leg. Alex says, how do you feel about blood flow restriction training? Uh, I think it's great. I actually think it's great for many different reasons. So one of the main things that, one of the main reasons people do blood flow restriction training or occlusion training is uh, it's shown to give the same benefits of in hypertrophy as heavy training, as heavy lifting. So you're gonna, if you're going to get the same amount of benefit from it as far as muscle growth then why not use it to your advantage and the way i mean that is heavy lifting is fun but if you're dealing with a nagging injury if you're dealing with sore joints if you're dealing with a little bit of tendonitis it's absolutely the perfect thing to do because let's say i'll give you an example let's say you have bad elbows let's say you have tendonitis in your elbow and it's arm day and you want to get you know your triceps you need to get a good tricep workout in because they're lagging put the occlusion bands on your arm, wrap that shit up for a set 
uh, for one of your exercises, not all of it, I wouldn't do it for all of it, but let's say you do it for one of the exercises. And then that exercise, let's say it's the one that hurts you the most when you go heavy, right? Let's say skull crushers, for example. When I do skull crushers, I get really bad elbows. So instead of torturing myself and trying to go heavy with it and making my elbows worse, because you can't really beat tendonitis. It just needs something that needs to heal through rest and or lighter activity and a lot of home therapies like ice and whatever. So with the occlusion training, I can go in and I can do skull crushers, but I can do it with a 50 pound preloaded bar instead of 150 pound preloaded bar. But if I have the occlusion bands on, I'm going to get the same benefit in the muscle according to studies. Okay. I'm going to get the same benefit. And I'm I'm not sure if that's because uh, they say it releases more MGF and, and more IGF when you do it that way, or if it's, uh, I'm not sure the exact mechanism in which it happens, but studies apparently are showing that by doing it, you can lift a little bit lighter and get the same benefits as if you're lifting heavy. So for those of you who haven't done inclusion training, just remember one thing, a couple of things that I want you to remember. And that's, uh, you're going to be in a seven to t- seven out of 10 strength for tightening the, um, the bands around your arm. Don't tighten it too tight. You don't want it to cause any damage, right? Seven out of 10. And then with the set, what you're going to do is you're going to shorten your rest rest in between sets. So you're going to put it on at the beginning of the exercise. You're going to keep it on throughout the whole exercise. And then you're going to shorten your rest periods. So, and it's also going to be higher volume. So let's say take skull crushers that we're talking about. You'll do 12 to 15 reps, 30 second rest, 12 to 15 reps, 30 second rest, and so on and so on and so on for three or four sets. And then that is your setup for that, for that exercise. And then you can move on to something else and don't use the bands again. You can, if you want to, but I would suggest that you don't, uh, in my opinion, it's like one exercise, maybe two max, but I wouldn't use them. I wouldn't use that principle for the whole exercise, for the whole workout. Matt Boatman says, what do you do to mentally prepare for a workout? Do you have a process or you just flip the switch when you get to the gym? Uh, it's kind of in between. I have a little bit of a process, but it's not, it's more of a ritual than a process to get me hyped up, but I guess you could say it's both. So I was shower before the gym. I know it's going to sound crazy, but about an hour before the gym, I take a shower or I actually I eat and then about half an hour before the gym, I'll take a shower. The reason I do that is one, I don't want to stink, but two, it's uh I just, it wakes me up. It kind of just recharges everything, freshens me up and I'm ready to go. I don't go to the gym tired. Um, after that, I get my, everybody's got a certain shirt they like for a certain body part. So I get the right shirt for the right body part. From there, I get my drinks ready, get my pre-workout drink, get my intra-workout drink, all that stuff. I get it all done. Then I get in the car. I get in the car. I have to have the right music. So I kind of have, I don't like to talk a lot. Like if I go to the gym with like one or two people, uh, if I go with my wife or I go with my wife and a friend or, you know, me and Paul go to the gym sometimes, I kind of don't talk too much on the way to the gym. I just like to put the music on. And I think that's the point where I start listening. I start listing in my mind what I want to do. 
I'm going to do this exercise and do that exercise. So it's not like, it's not like something where I planned it out the night before. I know some guys do that. They'll like plan their workout the night, night before and they think about it all day long. Maybe that works for them. I don't, it's not like that for me. It's kind of blurry for me. So as I'm going to the gym, I've planned out, okay, I, I, today I'm going to squat. Today I'm going to do this. Today I'm, today I'm going to do some, maybe I'll do some really high volume leg extensions, blah, blah, blah. Music's cranked. It's got to be the right music, training music. And uh, when I get to the gym, I usually don't talk to anybody. I kind of get in, might go to the washroom, get myself ready, get, you know, my headphones in, get everything going. And then uh, I start. I don't, I don't really. And then from there, it's just a blur. The whole thing is a blur. It's like uh, I kind of go to another place without trying to sound overdramatic. And it's not, just go to another world. And I'm like, okay this is where I am for an hour. I'm not anywhere else. I'm not talking on my phone. I'm not talking to my friends. I'm not stopping to shoot the shit at the fountain or anything. I just kind of there to work. And then it's all over. And then I open my eyes and it's like, I just had a good workout. <laughs> so it's kind of like it is this thing. It just, I guess it is a ritual in a sort, but uh, it's not really planned that way. It's just kind of the something I just started doing every day and became just becomes your ritual of how you get ready. But uh, I'm, I don't know if I'm a, I have been a flip the switch guy before. Like sometimes if I have to be on the phone uh, with a sponsor or something while I'm in the car on the way to the gym, it's obviously not conducive to being like fired up. So I'm having a normal conversation. And when I get to the gym, I can just, okay, it's time to go. Once that first set is done, it's like, it's it. It's, it's from there on is, no talking there's no bullshit it's just i'm training so cryptic stench 87 says can you sip eas all day well you can you can sip eas all day but are we talking pre-contest or are we talking off season if you're pre-contest there's calories in your eas so if you're sipping them all day long you're doing two or three scoops per jug that can add up but more importantly why do you need to that's kind of what I always wonder when I see people drinking essentials all day long and, and we have an essential hostile supplements. will have an essential amino. It's fully dosed eight grams per scoop, but it's like, I'm not trying to sell you supplements just for the sake of selling you supplements. I'm trying to sell you where you need them. Right. So nobody needs to eat. Nobody needs to drink uh, essential aminos all day long because you have a diet. And if you're on your diet and if you're eating your, the diet you should be eating and you're eating meals when you're supposed to be your body has plenty of aminos from the meals you ate so the times we want our aminos usually during training uh during training during cardio you know things like that post-training pre-training around our workouts is really when you need it the most and then i hear some people make the argument well i like to flavor my all my water with the essential aminos that's fine you can do that if you love the taste of your aminos so much that you want to flavor your water with them, that's fine. But in my opinion, you spent a lot of good money, good hard earned money on that, those essential aminos and they should be used where you should, where you, where they need to be used. And you could spend a lot less money on like sugar-free Kool-Aid or something and sweeten your water that way or flavor your water that way. So I know this probably goes against everything that every marketing team in the world is probably telling their customers you know you need to drink eas all day long and you need to fucking 
you know, the more scoops, the better, of course it is for them. Right. But that's not the truth. The truth is you need it around your workout. You need it when you're working out, you need it around your cardio, maybe when you're doing your cardio, if you're just doing it to flavor your water, flavor your water with something cheaper. Um, and I just don't think it's necessary to waste all that money, uh, throughout the day when you don't need it because you should be eating a proper diet that has all the essential aminos that you need in it in them anyway. So it's kind of my thought process on that. All right. Good. 1973 says, what are two things every beginning bodybuilder should do right out the gate? I don't know about two, but I know one, one for sure is learn how to eat. The first, first, first thing a bodybuilder should do because training is easy, especially when you start. When you start training, you can pretty much lift anything and you'll grow. You can make all the mistakes you want. You can be really sloppy with your form and you can do, you know, just really dumb things. I did them. And you can still grow because your body is not used to what's happening. So it's just going to develop anyways. But it's the eating. Okay. Because without the eating, okay, let me put it this way. If you're training like an idiot, like me, like when I started, my training was atrocious. Okay. If you're training like an idiot, but your eating is great, you can make a lot of progress, which I did. I made a lot of progress between year zero and year five with kind of shitty training, like sloppy sets, like really just loose form. Okay. Just sloppy. That's the best way to describe, best way to describe it. So, but my eating was really good. Not really good in a sense that it was a perfect diet. I just mean really good. Like I always got my meals in. I always got my macros in, always hit the numbers, always hit the proteins, carbs, fats. I always nailed everything. So my body was developing. The training, I think, doesn't become as important until you get to a real, uh, uh, an experienced level where you've been training for five, six, seven years, because then your body's like, okay, it starts to need more from you, better range of motion, maybe better rep speeds, better, maybe more weight progression, maybe some intensity techniques kind of have to start to add these things in when you start to hit plateaus. So the first thing to get back to your question, the first thing I would tell a bodybuilder when they start is to really learn how to eat, learn what your proteins are, your carbs are, your fats are, learn how much you need every day. I know there's a whole bunch of different opinions. Just get all of them and then and then take the middle. Okay. Some people say eat two grams. Some people say eat one gram. Just do a gram and a half. Okay. That's what I always did. Okay. And then if it doesn't, if it works for you, maybe go down to 1.25 and see, hey, oh, I'm still growing at 1.25. Okay, I can just do this. Or go down to one. So okay, I'm still growing at one. I can do this. So find out your macros. After you find out your macros. Learn to be very consistent. The diet is everything. The consistency of your diet is everything. How I promise you guys, you can take all the gear in the world. You can train your fucking ass off for hours a day. It's not going to matter if your diet is shit. The consistency of your diet, the regularity in which you get your meals in, the regularity in which you get good whole food meals in is what matters. It's when it's going to define you and the competition. After genetics, the number one thing is detail, okay? So the second rule is 
after learning what to eat is to pay attention to detail. Okay. And that means doing everything every day, exactly the same, the best way you know how. The guys after genetics, right? After genetics, the best bodybuilders are the ones who know how to eat and know how to do that shit every day on the clock. Like it's just a fucking, you know, it's just a perfectly timed machine, just on the dot, hitting every fucking macro when it's supposed to be done. Those are the best bodybuilders and they will always be the best bodybuilders because that's the recipe, right? That's the recipe. You could, you've seen form everywhere, right? Watch. You've seen Ronnie Coleman's form. You've seen Branch Warren's form. You've seen Phil Heath's form. You've seen Dorian Yates' form. All Mr. Olympias. Some people have loose form. Some people have really, really strict form. But guess what they all do? They all have great diets. They all are on a very strict diet all the fucking time to get to the level they got to. So beginning bodybuilders, learn how to eat. Pay attention to detail, those two things, okay? Learn how to eat, okay? And then every single day, you got to nail it every single time. Figure out what your perfect day is like and then learn to do that every single day. Sky's the limit says, when incrementally increasing your calories for a bulk, when do you know it's time to increase your intake? Um, I don't know. I would say you have to look at it in a different way. I would set up a plan where you're increasing your intake anyways. Actually. Okay. Let's go back. Let's take a step back. I think like this, let's say you set your calories at 3000 calories and you're bulking. You can say to yourself, ideally I'd like to increase my calories by 200 every two weeks or every week. Let's see. Let's see. I think the only time I would not increase calories so if my body didn't seem to be adjusting to the food. So let's say you start at 3,000 calories and you're like, okay, great, I'm starving. So you go to 3,200 after a week. Okay, cool. I, I don't notice the difference. I'm still starving. 3,200 is done nothing. Okay, after a week, go to 3,400. Okay, this is pretty good. Uh, I feel a little more full, but I'm still hungry. Okay, go to 36. You're going to keep doing that until you get to a point where you're like, holy fuck, the food's kind of hard to get down. I feel a little bloated. When you get there, scale back 200. Let's say you got there at 4,000. Once you got to 4,000 calories, you're like, holy fuck, I'm, I'm stuffed all of a sudden. I can't eat anymore. This is, mind you, this is meaning, this is if your diet's the same across the board. You haven't changed it in these four weeks, in, in, this, in this period of time. So when you get to 4,000 and you're bloated and you're feeling shitty, you're like, oh, I don't feel so good. I'm not digesting my food. I'm not. Go back to 3,800. Just do that and then stay there for a while. Stay at 3,800. You don't constantly have to be increasing your food. If you're in a surplus, you can just stay in that surplus, okay? Stay at 3,800. Once you start feeling better at 3,800, okay, you know what? Let's go now. Bump it up. And then you keep doing that. Now, feeling a little uncomfortable is not necessarily horrible. If you feel like shit all the time and you have no appetite, then you have to change something in your diet. But feeling a little uncomfortable is part of the game. We all feel a little uncomfortable. When I'm eating... 400 grams of rice in a sitting, it's not going to be comfortable. Okay. So I'm not saying you should feel phenomenal all the time. That's not really how it works. There's going to come a period where you're like, oh, fuck, I'm eating. That's okay. But it's to the point where if you're going like 
on four and five hours and you're still not hungry for your next meal, you've gone too far. You maybe need to pull back a little bit or change up your macros. Sometimes if you have too much fat, too much salt, you know, these kind of things, they can start to satiate your body too much. Sea Claw 1984 says, what's your take on the Game Changers documentary? Oh, I hate this thing so much. I hate this documentary so much. Okay, all I can say is this. There are studies on both sides of the equation, okay? Uh, There's a lot of studies to promote not eating meat, not eating animal proteins, and there's a lot of studies that promote eating tons of vegetables. Now, I just want to say one thing for the record. I am for eating lots of vegetables. I'm I'm not against eating animal proteins, though. I think you can get the benefits of the micronutrients and the, and the positive things that you can get from eating vegetables and still eat animal proteins and get their benefits as well. There's a lot of benefits of eating beef and things like that. So I don't know why we're playing this game where we're in a religion where we're like, Oh, I'm either a vegan or I'm either a, a fucking meat eater. It's like we're playing the, like, it's like we created two new religions and you have to belong to one or the other. The, the animal protein people are calling the vegans fucking pussies and the vegans are calling the animal protein people fucking uh, unethical people that just want to kill the planet. There is a middle ground where you're like, you know what? I eat meat. Uh, I try and do it ethically. I wish there was a way where I didn't have to eat factory farm meat, but I also eat lots of vegetables because they are very healthy for you and they are going to help my blood work stay clean and they are going to help all of the things that they said in the, in, the, in the documentary is true. This is the one study I point to that kind of worries me. Now, the, when they were talking about most of the athletes they brought on in the, in the documentary were not uh, muscle-building athletes. I know they brought on Arnold, but we all know Arnold wasn't a vegan when he put on all his muscles, so that doesn't count. They, I don't know how being a vegan impacts performance or impacts health. If you want to say that it's better in those two terms and we're actually having a debate about it, I could say fine. The one study I point to is that animal proteins are more bioavailable, bioavailable to the human body. So if you took, you know, sometimes they'll say like, you know, if you took this much broccoli, it has the same amount of protein as this much uh, beef. That's fine. First of all, the protein in broccoli is not complete. That's the number one thing. It has to be a complete protein to be used by the body. I know there's some debate about that, but I don't know why. Um, And a complete protein means it has all the essential amino acids. So you can combine certain foods. Like if you combine like peanut butter and bread, or if you combine beans and rice, you can get complete proteins. Okay, fine. So we have a solution, right? We don't. Because your body absorbs the aminos from animal proteins better than it does from vegetables or other sources. So even if the protein number is the same, like if I took in 50 grams of th- of this from a non-animal protein source and 50 grams from this animal protein source, I'm only going to get 40 or 30 grams from the, the vegan side. And I'm going to get, you know, 45 or 47 from the animal side. And what the study was saying is, until they start genetically modifying vegetables to help us absorb the aminos better, which could happen in the future, 
our best bet right now for building muscle, for optimally putting on muscle and optimally absorbing as many aminos as possible is animal protein. So that study keeps me from saying, yes, you're, you're right about the vegan thing. It's the way to go. We should all just eat vegetables. I'm not against it. I don't, I'm not playing like this religion or that religion. If, if I could be this big and be healthier by eating just vegan protein, I don't care. I mean, I like the taste of a steak. I probably still have one from time to time, but if I could just eat vegetables most of the time, that's fine. But even if you talk, even if you talked about, even if you said they were equal, the toughest part is this, how do you get the amount in? If I eat four ounces of steak, I get 40 to 45 grams of protein. How much beans and rice do I have to eat to get 40 to 45 grams of protein? And then if I do that, how much carbs am I getting with that that I'm going to have to burn somehow? Like, how do you set up your macros? I don't understand. How do I set up my macros in a vegan diet where I'm getting 60% of my macro, 60% of my macro makeup from protein? I'm not sure how that works. So even if the bioavailability of vegetables was just as good, I don't know how I would get in this, the 350 grams I need every day without, like while still getting shredded. I don't know how that happens. So it's a tough one for me. Um, I chose the sport of bodybuilding. I don't think bodybuilding will ever be a vegan sport. Uh, not because we're morally unethical or because we're pigheaded or anything like that, but because we're always trying to be the biggest and best we can. And nobody has proved to me yet that you can do it by eating just vegetables until somebody does. It's going to be hard to convince me. Okay, guys, this will be the last one. This is the last question for part one. Okay. So after this question, I'm going to do more, but we will do them on the uh, hostile page. Um, you guys can check out that Q&A there. I'll probably upload that tomorrow or the day after. Uh, the other thing I want to ask you guys is if you go to hostile.com, or actually, sorry, if you go to the hostile SUPS Instagram, if you go to Instagram, you go to at hostile SUPS uh, or you go to my Instagram page, you can click a link to get signed up for pre-orders. So when the supplements launch, we're probably going to start doing pre-orders in December. So when the supplements are ready to launch, you guys will be on the list to be first uh, to get them if you want to pre-order that way. So uh, check that out on Instagram. But I'll get to the last question now. Adam James Cooper says, have you used a glucose monitor for fat loss, muscle building, if so, how, if not your thoughts, uh, immediately, the first thing I think to myself is way overcomplicated. Um, I know some coaches use glucose monitors to help guys carb up. They want to see where their blood sugar's at when they're carving up and things like that. It's, it's a little over my head, to be honest with you. I don't, I've never used a glucose monitor. I don't know. I mean, I've checked. Like if you're talking about blood sugar, I've tested, I've tested that, but not for fat loss. It's just for health. But I, I just don't see see it being necessary. Like if you figure out your macros, you figure out what you need to eat for the day, you figure out your calories. That's what you need. That's all the information you need. You need to know 
what your macro makeup is, what your calorie intake for the day is, and then you can set up a plan from there. You don't have to overcomplicate things by adding glucose monitors and all these other things that people are doing. It's just making things harder than they have to be. It's very, very simple. You can look at a paper and say, I'm allowed 3,000 calories a day. I'm just using it as, as an example. I'm allowed 3,000 calories a day. I want to look good, so my macros have to be made up of a certain macro, comp, macro makeup. Like, my body, I want my body composition to be hard, not soft. So I think I'm going to have to eat things that are better for me, like maybe more protein and a little less carbs, maybe a moderate amount of fat. So once you set up, I need 3,000 calories – now you need to set up your macro intake. Once you set those two things up, there's nothing really else to set up. You just, from there, you're like, okay, how much cardio am I going to do? And how much training am I going to do? That's it. I don't really think it's so complicated that I see so many fads, so many fads, intermittent fasting and fucking the keto diet and the fucking Atkins diet, and the fucking vegan diet. And it's like, Man, it's just a balanced diet and a calorie deficit with a proper macro makeup and you'll lose weight and you'll look good. I don't mean just lose weight. It's really easy to lose weight. You could fucking just cut your calories in half and just start losing weight. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about losing weight and looking good. Take your calories, reduce them a little bit, 200, 300 calories. And just sit in a deficit. Do your cardio, do your training. And, and just watch your body lose weight. It just takes time. So I don't know, man. I don't think you need to bother with all this stuff. Maybe I'm old school, but I just think it's a lot easier than you're making it. All right, guys. That's uh, Hostile Q&A number 10. And I hope you guys enjoyed. Please check out the Hostile uh, YouTube page and check out at Hostile Subs on Instagram. We will be having more information and a live Q&A on Wednesdays on the Instagram page as well. So if you're not signed up or following that page, please do, please do so. Um, until next time, thank you guys for watching.